Ephesus has been called in the ancient days the marketplace of Asia Minor. And that's simply because there were key cities that had trade routes that went through them, some by land, some by sea. Ephesus was a unique place in that it had a harbor which was magnificent. In fact, the harbor had a colonnade, that is, a series of pillars, columned, that were on each side of a street that led from the harbor to a great temple and the agora, the marketplace, in the center of Ephesus. There were inside roads or inland roads and roads by the sea along with the harbor which made Ephesus an ideal place of commerce. So you could get just about anything you wanted to in Ephesus. And there was a large population, about 300,000 people, slightly under the population of Colorado Springs, Colorado. And, you know, for an ancient city, that was doing pretty good. Ephesus was also the center of the imperial cult. In Ephesus, they were the caretakers of a huge temple. In fact, it was the center of a temple for Diana, a goddess that they worshipped in Ephesus and all throughout the Roman Empire. In some of your translations tonight, you will see the word Artemis. And in other translations, like mine, if you're reading New King Jimmy, you'll see the translation Diana. They're both the same goddess. In Greek, they called her Artemis. But the Romans called her Diana. And since this is dealing with the Roman Empire, that was the common term, the great goddess Diana. Diana was believed to be a virgin huntress. That is, uh, someone who would go out and hunt game, very brave goddess. But in Ephesus, she became associated for some reason with the Asian goddess of fertility. Now, if you remember our Old Testament studies, you remember we spoke to you about a goddess by the name of Ashtart, a fertility goddess of the Canaanites. Artemis, or Diana, seems to be representative in the new culture of Greek and Rome of that same goddess. In other words, the pagan gods and goddesses of the past are catching up with the present. And basically, that's what idolatry is in pagan worship. It's the same old lie dressed up in new clothes. And if you trace the New Age movement, you'd find that it has ancient roots. It's not anything new. It's an old age with new clothes on it. And so this Diana worship was an ancient cult that started way in the east and started moving west. She was represented by a grotesque figurine of a woman with many breasts, multi-breasted image. Thus, she was the goddess of fertility. There were prostitute priestesses that were in her temple, and uh, men would go into the city, like in Corinth, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, for quote-unquote uh, worship throughout the evening. The temple of Diana, this is background for this chapter before we read about it here, was four times the size of the Greek Parthenon, which if you've ever been to Athens, it is spectacular, it's humongous. It's four times the size. In fact, the temple of Diana was 418 feet long. To give you an idea, uh, this church from side to side is 125 feet wide by 120 feet deep and uh, 160 feet from wall to wall, from back to front. And so 418 feet long by 239 feet wide with a 100 pillars on each side, each spanning 
uh, 60 feet tall, capped by a white marble roof. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And within this seven wonder was this huge statue to the goddess Diana, whom people from all over the Roman Empire would come just to worship. In Ephesus, associated with the great temple of Diana, were occultic worship practices. We would call witchcraft or Satanism. There were magical charms, magical words, amulets. You could buy words or little scrolls that were like your fortune uh, from different goddesses and spiritual enchanters uh, to give you a personal word from the gods so that your life could be governed. Well, that's the background. And it happened, verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, Well, we haven't heard so much whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. That is John the Baptist's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who had come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And there were about twelve of these men in all. These were disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't received full disclosure of the gospel. Now John the Baptist looked forward to the Messiah. But at his time, he didn't know who the Messiah was until Jesus was revealed. And it seemed that Apollos and these twelve as well had partial information. They knew that a Messiah would come. They knew that you should be baptized to turn from your sins. But they hadn't heard that a man named Jesus came to break the bonds of their sin, to set them free and give them forgiveness. They hadn't heard the whole gospel. And so when Paul comes there, he says, well... Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? Well, I don't know. What's the Holy Spirit? He said, well, into what were you baptized? John's baptism. And it clicked. Paul recognized these people haven't received the full gospel. They have no idea what I'm talking about. I believe, for several reasons, that the people involved here are true Christians. Now, I've read several commentators who said these can't be believers because otherwise they would have known about the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, it's possible to be a young Christian and not have all the lingo down or the definitions down. I was a Christian for about a week and a half before I'd ever heard the term born again. And somebody said, have you been born again? I thought, I'd never heard that term. Now, as soon as I heard it, I thought, that's a great description. Where'd you find that term? Did you make that up? said, no, Jesus said you must be born again. I thought, well, you know, that's a beautiful and perfect description of what happens to anyone when they come to know Christ. I feel like I've been born all over again. That's a great phrase. But I didn't know all the lingo. And up to that point, I didn't know if I was born again or not until it was confirmed in the Scripture. And I think that you could be a young believer, believe in Jesus, not have all the lingo down and thus be confused when somebody asks you a question like this. But we know from the text that they believed because it says that they were disciples in verse 1 and Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
They were believers. Furthermore, they were baptized into repentance before Paul got there. When Paul arrived in Ephesus and saw these disciples, there must have been, and I'm inferring this by context, something lacking in their walks that Paul noticed. He picked up on, otherwise he wouldn't have asked this question. But something prompted Paul to ask this question. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? Paul has never asked that question before that we have seen recorded. But something must have given it away that there was something lacking in their faith. Perhaps a joy, a vitality, uh, a desire for involvement in the work of the Lord. Something, some stagnancy or uh, some deficit that he noticed. It just bothered him. And so he asked the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? I believe it's possible to be a believer, to be a Christian, to be born again, to follow Jesus, and yet not have experienced the fullness of what God has for us. The fullness and the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, red lights go off in people's minds when you mention baptism, filling, dwelling, or whatever of the Holy Spirit. It is an area of great controversy. And people are very divided. In fact, some churches are so divided that that's what splits churches apart. It makes two or eight churches out of one because of the division over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Some people have very technical names for the experience. Some people will have a chart and they'll say, well, we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but then there is another experience besides the baptism called the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Then, And they get very scientific about all of them. On the other hand, you have people who deny the very term baptism of the Holy Spirit as being an unscriptural term. I don't know why it's all over the scripture. But people are upset with the whole idea of a Christian once saved being freshly baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, why is there such controversy? Well, first of all, ignorance, as we see here in Acts 19. We don't even know that there's the Holy Spirit. That's ignorance. But there is also ignorance today in the church among many believers. There are people who just don't quite have their finger on what is really true or not. And it is a confusing subject if you only listen to the opinions of different Christians. That's why it's great to go to the Word. I'm not saying that I alone have the greatest interpretation and the only true one, nor do you. But there are a few givens and safety scriptures that lead us to truth. But the first cause of controversy is ignorance. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. And it's always interested me that every time Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant about something, it happens to be one of the areas that the church is most ignorant about. Spiritual gifts, there's great ignorance. The other time Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, is of the coming of the Lord. And when it comes to eschatology, the doctrine of last things, there's quite a bit of ignorance. But the word that Paul used in the Greek, I don't want you to be ignorant, when he wrote to the Corinthians, was the word agnosko, where we get our word agnostic, which doesn't necessarily mean I'm without knowledge. It can mean unteachable. If you're really honest, you have to admit that none of us 
are totally objective. You'd like to think you are, but you're not. None of us is totally objective. You have a bent. You have presuppositions and a predisposition toward believing or leaning toward a certain direction. All of us do. That's part of being human. And so when we approach the Scripture, we approach it with the automatic bent. That's why sometimes... Uh, People, when they read the Bible, will just say, boy, the Bible says so much about this one thing. That's because they could have a bent toward it. They're not really being totally objective. Now, that can hinder us. It can hinder us from the work that the Holy Spirit would want to do in our lives. When Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts, keep in mind he was writing not to a group of people who denied the validity of spiritual gifts, but a group of people who said, we flourish in spiritual gifts. But Paul said they are ignorant of the total operation of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible to claim spiritual giftedness, to claim to flow and move in the power of the Holy Spirit and be willingly ignorant of the total operation of the Spirit. I could give you several examples, but one example that occurred in the 1970s at the very beginning was a movement known as the Charismatic Movement. I believe started by the Holy Spirit, but then over emphasizing certain gifts of the Holy Spirit to where I believe it didn't become a move of God any longer. I think that any movement that will emphasize three gifts to the exclusion of the rest isn't really a movement of God when God in the Scripture says all of the gifts have equal importance. But when you just emphasize tongues, prophecy, healing, but you don't emphasize governments, teaching, exhortation, helps, and the other myriad of gifts, I think that it's out of balance. And... You can be ignorant and deny spiritual gifts totally, but you can also be ignorant claiming to function and flourish in them, but be unteachable because you're just emphasizing a few. So that's one of the reasons there's controversy. Another reason are abuses. It's controversial because when you mention to people the Holy Spirit, they go, ooh, no, please, not, not that. Listen, I've seen so many abuses, they're thinking... I've been to so many churches and it's like, oh, it's just so weird. I don't want to be a part of it. In fact, I'm not even open to it. Don't even talk to me about it. And so they shy away from it because they have seen goofballs abusing the Holy Spirit. And you know what? In some respects, I feel sorry for the Holy Spirit being blamed for so much nonsense that has gone on. That's very contradictory and leaves the unbeliever scoffing many times and laughing because it's not a true movement of God. And so ignorance on one hand, abuses on the other hand. Now, a lot of people object to the term baptism of the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, I object to it because the moment a person says, Lord Jesus, come into my life, I know that I'm a sinner. Wash me from my sins Write my name in your book of life. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow you right now. That at that moment, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Be all and all. Well, yes and no. Yes, at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes into you. And He dwells within you. And every single Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He seals you into the day of redemption. 
And they quote a couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given one Spirit to drink. The other one is Ephesians 4 that declares there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all. And so they say, see, when you ask Jesus to be your Savior, that's it. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And that ends it. At salvation, that's it. However, Jesus spoke of two baptisms. He said, John truly baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Which is an old King Jimmy word for from now. Not many days from now you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The term baptism shouldn't flip you out. Shouldn't really bother you. Because it simply means to completely submerge or to dip into. It was used of the Greeks when they would take garments and they wanted to dye them. They would dip them in dye. They baptized them. Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism. For the two disciples, James and John, when they said, listen, Jesus, we'd like to sit one in your right hand, one in your left hand. We'd like chief executive officer positions in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Speaking of his death, the scripture says. And so baptism, whether it's being baptized into the body of Christ, submerged as a Christian into God's people, baptized into death, completely having death surround you, baptized into water where you're dipped, submerged, or baptized into the Holy Spirit where he's in total control. Don't let the word bother you. It just speaks of a total submersion. A total control of. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is where He controls your life. In the Scripture, I see a threefold working of God's Holy Spirit. One, it's when the Holy Spirit comes in you. You're His house. He dwells in you. Your body becomes sacred at the point you become a Christian. Your body becomes a holy house, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Before He came into you, however, He was with you. Convicting you of your sin. Telling you, you need a Savior. He'd follow you to parties. And He'd make you feel guilty when you were doing things you shouldn't do. When you were having conversations with people and thoughts would go through your mind, it was the Holy Spirit who said, you're empty, you need a Savior. And He finally convinced you of that. And that's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit will be with you and then the Holy Spirit will be in you. At the moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit isn't just with you, He comes in you. But then Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you will be my witnesses, martus, faithful unto death, witnesses, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. There's a threefold working. With, before you're a Christian, In, the moment you become a Christian, forever He dwells in you. And then upon, as the Holy Spirit fills you, baptizes you for works of service, as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You see, a lot of people have the Holy Spirit within them. They're Christians. But they don't have Him as a dynamic force 
issuing from their life for works of service. They're just kind of hmm, blasé or really not turned on to the things of the Lord. Now, I am not trying to say that you have to be animated or try to put something on to prove that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. There are personality types that differ from one another. And, and there's not like a giveaway personality that designates you're baptized in the Spirit. It's not if you go, praise God, people, he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Look at him. Look at him. Listen to him. That could be put on too. But there's a freshness that happens at that time. Now, is it for the apostolic age only, as some have said? No. Way back, we remember in Acts, the second chapter, Peter spoke about the Holy Spirit. And he said, this promise of the Spirit is not only for you, but for your children. And for as many as are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Well, you're afar off from 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And you called upon the name of the Lord, didn't you? And the Lord called you, didn't He? And as many as the Lord our God shall call have the same promise offered to them as in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Now let me refer you back to a story before we move on. Three times a year, Jesus would try, along with most male Jews, to go to Jerusalem for feast days. One of the feasts on one occasion that he went to was in the fall, around October, when we go to Israel this year, called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time when the children of Israel would get together and just have a great celebration. By the way, the, when you would, would go to church in Israel, you had a blast. There was singing, there was uh, dancing, there was drama, uh, as I'll describe to you uh, in, in a bit for the feast days. And they would celebrate at Tabernacles the fact that God kept their fathers alive for 40 years out in the Sinai Desert. And they want to praise the Lord for it. How would they do it? Well, they'd build little booths and put palm branches on top and live in them for a week. They'd camp out. They would commemorate the fact that God led them through the wilderness in primitive conditions and sustained them. During the feast, they would offer 60 bullocks upon the altar of sacrifice at the temple. Every day, the priest would march down to the pool of Siloam, which was the watering hole in Jerusalem, and he would get a pitcher of water, it would be brought up to the temple, and he would dump the water at the base of the altar, signifying that in the wilderness, God led them and gave them water from the rock. At night... The people would gather together, thousands of them with torches, and have a fired light torch procession around the city of Jerusalem. Spectacular. Jesus was at this feast one time. And it says in John chapter 7 that on the last and greatest day of the feast, which was the eighth day, that Jesus said something very interesting concerning His Holy Spirit, but at an appropriate time. All the Jews were gathered in the temple, on the eighth day, the priest would make seven marches around the altar, take two jugs full of water, and dump the water in a dramatic fashion and douse the base of the altar, signifying that God refreshed our fathers. As soon as it was poured, the people would sing that God will bring us joy. Um, we will have joy as God draws out the waters of salvation. Isaiah chapter 12, they would sing it. 
as they would sing it and watch in awe as the water was dousing the base of the altar. Jesus stood up and he cried out so that thousands of people could hear him. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being will gush rivers of living water. Don't you think that got their attention just at the right time when the water was being poured out? John, commenting on this, said, This he spoke concerning his Holy Spirit, which was not yet given, for Jesus was not yet glorified. But when Jesus was glorified, he again took his disciples and promised them, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what an invitation that is. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his heart, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. What an invitation. First of all, to have your thirst quenched. So I'll ask you two questions. Are you a Christian? Have you had your thirst quenched? Oh, yeah, I've been a Christian. Second question, are you a fountain? We wrongly interpret that passage saying that, oh, I'll just have this bubbly joy. No. You'll have rivers of living water that will flow out from you so that you will refresh other people. And this he spoke about his Holy Spirit. There are people who have received Christ, but they're not a fountain. In fact, many of them are a drain. I mean, just wherever they go, it's just... Now, we need each other. We need personal ministry. But when a person is filled with the Spirit, people instinctively come to that person for refreshment. They will just instinctively come because they know there's something there. There's some source that never runs dry. What is it? If I have a question, if I need prayer, I can just hang on to that person. Well, Jesus promised that concerning the Holy Spirit for those who would believe in Him out of their inmost being would gush rivers of living water. You know, there's three basic kind of faith that people have. First of all is, I would say, unsaved faith, or the faith of the unsaved. That is where people acknowledge that God exists in their brain. He's somewhere out there, but they've never committed themselves to God personally. You see, tonight, if you believe that Jesus exists, you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you believe that there was a man named Jesus who died on the cross, you might know all those things and not be saved. Because it says in the book of James, even the devil believes that and he trembles. You see, he knows it up here, but it's never changed the way he lives. That's the faith of the unsaved. Then there's saving faith. I know these facts about God and about Jesus. Thus, I come to Him to save me of my sins. I cast myself upon Him. I am now His disciple. Whatever He says goes. That's saving faith. And then there's flowing faith. You're a believer, but you're more than that. You're a fountain where you refresh other people around you and people come to you. You know, I know a lot of Christians that have the Holy Spirit all bottled up in a nice theological package. A little precept. They know the doctrines, they can turn to it, but their life is dry. Guy Duffield and Dr. Nat Van Cleve, in their fine volume of systematic theology concerning the Holy Spirit said, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is not something to have. It's something to use. 
It is not the height of spiritual experience, but one of the tremendously essential foundations for further development and service. Now that's what Paul noticed was lacking. Further development and service. You guys receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't know. Haven't heard of it. How'd you been baptized? Baptism of John. They baptized, they were then baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul laid his hands on them as a means of identification, spiritual transference, if you will. Prayed for them, and these gifts ensued, which we've spoken about in times past. Tongues and prophecy. And there were about twelve of them in all. And he went into the synagogue, verse 8, and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way. What an interesting designation for early Christians. You know, back then it was great. There weren't Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, Baptists. There were just them. The way. That was their designation at first. The way. They were called Christians, as we remember, in Antioch as a derogatory term. It was not a compliment. They were called the way several times in Acts. Because it was the way of ways. Jesus always described following Him in terms of the right way and the wrong way. He said, the way to destruction is wide and many enter into it. But the way to eternal life is narrow and few who find it. Enter into the straight narrow gate. The way. And so when... Some were hardened. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude, departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning with... He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. Boy, and I love this phrase. So that all who dwelt in Asia... This is hyperbole, no doubt, but the idea is that the gospel spread into the far remote regions. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Tyrannus was obviously a philosopher or an educator who had some kind of a, a room or a place that he could rent out. He owned some kind of a lecture hall. Tyrannus means despot or tyrant. And one wonders if his parents named him this or his pupils named him this if he was a hard kind of a teacher. But it seems that Tyrannus, being a philosopher or an educator, taught in his lecture hall in the early morning hours when people were awake, the cool of the day. And then he rented it out, and as some other texts tell us, between 11 o'clock and 4 in the afternoon, that's when Paul took over. For five hours a day, he started preaching. The funny thing about it is that's the time when people were off work taking a long siesta. They would work in the early morning, the cool hours of the morning. They'd take a long lunch break, a long siesta. Then they'd go back to work in the evening. They'd get a full day's work, but they'd split it so that in the hot hours of the day they could crash. So imagine Paul speaking to an audience who had a large lunch, no air conditioning, and they're sitting listening to Paul, probably a lot of them dozing off. But I bet he was able to get their attention, don't you? because he was speaking about things they'd never heard before. In fact, all of Asia heard the Word of God. The Word of God was just sounded for, uh, just from that one spot. And then in verse 11, Now God worked unusual 
miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Ephesus was an unusual place. We've already discussed that at the beginning. It was an occultic place. It was a satanic stronghold. There was unusual demonic activity. Thus, God worked in an unusual way by giving Paul unusual miracles. And Luke speaks about one of those unusual miracles, and that is handkerchiefs taken from Paul's body were given to people, and when they touched these things, they were healed. There are always skeptics when it comes to the supernatural, uh, to miraculous, not only outside the church, but inside the church. There's a lot of people who just think, I don't know about miracles. I don't really know if I can quite believe them. In fact, liberals, liberal theologians and commentators are embarrassed by the verses we just read. And they think it's got to be mythological. It can't really be true that people were healed by these things. And there's always skeptics. There's a guy on television from time to time called the Amazing Randy. He is quite amazing. He's an amazing skeptic. And he's a good thinker. He's very logical. It sounds like he's been influenced by philosophers like David Hume and others. But basically, he says, I challenge anyone, anyone, he said this on Johnny Carson, to show me a true miracle. And I'll be able to prove that it wasn't a true miracle. In fact, on the Johnny Carson show years back, he publicly exposed a televangelist by the name of Peter Popoff, who I always knew was crazy and nutty and a charlatan. But he proved him. Uh, he said, you know, and, and, he, and he just exposed him on Johnny Carson. He said, uh, it's been shown. I went into his network and in disguise, uh, he would go up there with supposed words of knowledge. And he would say, uh, is there somebody out here named Peter over in this section, maybe 42 years of age? Uh, somebody raised his hand. Okay, this Peter lives on 4200 East Broderick Lane. That's my address, the guy would say. And they were amazed. And he would call out certain things. Well... He had a little microphone and he was transmitting to his... His wife was transmitting to him. He had an earpiece. And backstage, she would read a card that that man filled out and saw where he was sitting. And she'd be feeding him information through a transmitter and he would act like God spoke it to him. And he exposed him on national television. And Johnny Carson said, Does Peter Popoff know about this? And he said, He does now. And... Actually, I'm glad he was exposed. But skepticism rises when you see the false. And therefore, a lot of people won't give any kind of credence to the genuine article. And they think, oh, miracles, it just can't happen. I'm a skeptic. I hear about these guys on television. It can't be true. But as we know who are believers... Though the enemy, Satan, has his counterfeits, and the world really doesn't know the difference, as a believer, you know that nothing's too hard for God. That's one of the basic foundations of your faith. God can do anything He wants. He's God. Paul stood before King Agrippa, and he gave his defense. He said, King Agrippa, why do you think it's an incredible thing that God raised the dead? What's so hard about that? Now, for me, it's tough, but for God, it's no problem. 
God came to Sarah and Abraham and said, you're going to have a son. Sarah was in the tent, overheard it, and she laughed to herself, not out loud. She thought, could I have any pleasure when I'm an old woman? And the messenger outside the tent said, hey, why did Sarah laugh? And she said, hey, hey, I didn't laugh. She said, yeah, you did. You did it to yourself, but I heard you. Now, Sarah, is there anything too hard for God? Good question for yourself next time you see the impossible. There's nothing impossible for God. But we read this passage and we wonder what happened here back in the book of Acts. Our miracles for today. Now, I'll warn you, some people follow miracles. That's all they follow. They don't follow Christ. They follow miracles. And Jesus stays away from people like that. Did you know that? Acts chapter 2. And when people saw the signs and the wonders He was doing, many were following Jesus and coming around Him. But it says Jesus would not commit Himself to them. They would commit Himself... uh, Uh, They would commit themselves to Him, but He wouldn't commit Himself to them because they were in it for the wrong motivation. And people just follow miracles sometimes. And then there's wrong teaching concerning miracles and healing. Uh, Some uh, evangelists, um, well-meaning perhaps, I'm really not quite sure, have used this verse that we just read in verse 12 as a proof text to do the same thing where they'll cut out little pieces of cloth and they'll have their handprint on it. And they'll say, I laid it on myself and here now you lay it on yourself and you'll be healed. In fact, I have in my files a shower cap with a handprint on it and you're supposed to put it on your head and that's the laying on of hands upon your head. I've got files of this stuff. It's absolutely crazy. But there are those who will say, that every single Christian ought to be healed. And just as Paul did this, you can also be healed if you have this thing touch you, and every Christian should walk in perfect health. I know a couple, uh, actually two couples I've met so far, who were banished from Christian fellowship from their particular church because at a time when their child was sick, And in the hospital and ready to die, the baby wasn't healed after they prayed prayers of faith because they thought, it's you as parents that are living lives of sin and corruption, otherwise your baby would be healed. And they just banished them, basically. Laid a guilt trip on them. See, that's the result of this doctrine. It alienates people. It puts a guilt trip upon people. It doesn't bring them into the fellowship. Laying a trip on parents like that whose kids are in the hospital. A man wrote a book, I love his quote, I believe in the church. He said, God does not always choose to heal us physically. And perhaps it is as well that He does not. How people would rush to Christianity and for all the wrong motives if it carried with it automatic exemption from sickness. What a nonsense it would make of the Christian virtues like long-suffering, patience, and endurance if instant wholeness were available for all the Christian sick. What a wrong impression it would give of salvation if physical wholeness were perfectly realized on earth while spiritual wholeness were partly reserved for heaven. What a curious thing it would be if God were to decree death for all of His children while not allowing illness for any of them. Now, as I've said, many have tried to imitate verse 12 with their little prayer hankies and so forth. What they don't realize, a lot of them, I'm sure, is the original Greek of this passage. 
The original Greek doesn't say prayer cloths. It's sweatbands. Sweat handkerchiefs that were tied about Paul's head that were probably soaked with his own sweat because he was a tent maker in the early morning hours. And the aprons were aprons that he used for his trade as a tent maker, which were filled with dye and all sorts of chemicals, and they stunk. You've got to wonder, as you read the New Testament, at the methods of healing that God has chosen. If you just isolate the times Jesus healed people, some of them were quite strange. Sometimes he would just say at a distance, go home, he's healed. Didn't have to touch him. Other times he touched them twice, not once, twice. He could have done it once, but he did it twice. Other times he there was a responsibility on the part of the healee. Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. At another time, Jesus spat in his hand, put mud in it, rubbed it, and put it in the guy's eye and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, how do you think people would respond if at a healing crusade somebody tried that? <laughs> now, my point is this. You can't say God does something one way all the time. He does different methods. Why did we do it here? I don't know, but it worked. Well, what's the idea of touching a cloth from somebody and they're being healed? I believe it's simply a point of contact to release faith. There was a woman in the Gospels. She said, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. Did his garment glow? Was there something magnificent about Jesus' clothes different from anyone else because he wore them? No. But she set up in her mind the hem of his garment as a point of contact to release her faith, I believe. And she just said, I know, I know, I know. If I touch the hem of his garment, it's going to happen. As soon as the hem of garment was in reach, she touched it. It was like a trigger. It released her faith. And Jesus perceived power had gone out of him. And he said, who touched me? And the disciples said, who touched you? You've got a crowd pressing you. Who touched you? Everybody touched you. No. There's something different. There's a touch of faith here. People are pressing around me, but some woman has believed. He said, daughter, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And so it could be here, this unusual miracle that verse 11 and 12 speak about, I believe is a point of contact to release faith. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Ooh, that's a frightening response. We could read on. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The next time we get together, we'll speak a little bit about exorcism, demon possession, what this is all about. But one thing you want to make sure, you don't want to go looking for it. You best be prepared spiritually, or you could be dog meat at the end of that kind of an episode. You just don't want to... When people say, I'm an exorcist. Oh, goodness. You look for that stuff? You like that stuff? 
And here's a group of people who thought they had it wired. Their job was to cast out evil spirits. They were into the deliverance ministry. And it got the better of them. And we'll read a little bit about that next time we meet. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We, we thank You, Lord, for Your Holy Spirit. How often we don't even think about Him. We even neglect His sovereignty in our lives. We know, Lord, that His distinct ministry is to lead us to Jesus Christ. For that's what the Lord Jesus told us. Not to speak of Himself or glorify Himself, but speak of Jesus. But it was Jesus who promised us, Lord, that we would receive power, a dynamic. The kind of experience where life and refreshment would flow from us as Your Holy Spirit is in us, upon us, And Father, we ask that that would be our experience. Though we don't completely understand, we ask, for you said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? And so we ask, Lord, some for the first time that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, you'd baptize us, you'd give us empowerment for service. There be a freshness, a refreshing about our lives. That we would not be content to see the Holy Spirit as a doctrine upon a whited page, but as the powerful God in control of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that our days would change. Our days at work with people. Where every morning, every incident, we'd say, Lord, do it. Give me a fresh filling. Boost. Help me to represent You. Fill me with Your Spirit. May that be our constant prayer. That we'd have that close connection and dependence upon You. For we ask it in Jesus' name.